David Otieno Sidi remembers when he first heard the name Bill Gates. He was in high school in Magori County, a farming community in Kenya. These are people who are coming to help people in Africa with the goodies, bring development. But as time went by, we started now analyzing critically. Now, as an adult, David still farms. I'm a smallholder farmer and a member of the Kenyan Peasants League. And he's still thinking about Bill Gates. If you look at seed research, you realize they are pushing for adoption of seeds. They are also pushing for fertilizers, polluting our rivers. The loans that they give out are coming with conditions. I started realizing such things. That's when my mind changed about the intentions of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation has been working on agriculture in Africa for about two decades, trying to reduce poverty and hunger. But millions more people are going hungry every year, and the pandemics made that worse. With the recent divorce of Bill and Melinda Gates, the Foundation's future may be in question. But when it comes to one Gates project in Africa, there are already questions about what it's achieved so far I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today I'm joined by our senior producer, Amy Walters, who's been looking into what the Gates Foundation has been up to in Africa. Hi, Amy. Hi, Malika. So I know you talked to David, who we just heard from, and we'll hear from him again. He's in Kenya. But the reporting you did started with a few calls here in the United States. Exactly. Actually, the first email I sent was to a Gates Foundation initiative called AGRA. It's the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. And I'm going to tell you all about them in a minute. But I also called the Gates Foundation themselves. Hi, this is Amy Walters. Um, I have to tell you, I have not heard back from either of them. And it's been a few weeks now. But it turns out, Malika, I've learned that what's happening to me may not be actually that uncommon. And I learned this from someone named Tim Schwab. Tim's a journalist. He writes for the magazine The Nation quite a bit. And he's working on a book on the Gates Foundation. And he told me a little bit about what he's been going through trying to get in touch with them. I've asked many times to interview Bill or Melinda Gates or anyone at the Gates Foundation. I've never been given a single interview. I've asked dozens, if not hundreds of questions that have gone unanswered via email. So it it just, it speaks to an organization that it seems like it doesn't like to be challenged or to be criticized. So that's kind of the starting point. I know that the Gates Foundation is big. They've been doing a lot of work on health and hunger on the continent of Africa, and they've done some pretty ambitious projects working on eradicating polio through a vaccine program. They're working on a malaria vaccine. What else are they doing? Yeah, you're exactly right. The Gates Foundation is big, really big. They've spent more than $50 billion on grants and loans since 2000 when they started, and that includes $2 billion a year that they've been spending on agriculture and other projects in Africa. So it's a lot of money. And you could probably guess that money also comes with a lot of influence. And one of the things Tim was saying that's so interesting is that up until now, there really hasn't been a lot of critical reporting on the foundation. And one reason, I think, is because Gates funds so many of, of its would-be critics. 
That includes pouring a quarter billion dollars into newsrooms and journalism and $8 billion into universities. So between academics and journalists, you have so many people who could be putting a critical lens to the Gates Foundation. And it's not that that's never happened. It's just that it hasn't been commensurate with the power and influence that the Gates Foundation wields. Since 2000, the year 2000, the Gates Foundation has donated more than $250 million to support journalists and media organizations around the world, including Al Jazeera. And then, of course, you heard in May about the divorce announcement. Yes, Bill and Melinda Gates, who started and run the Gates Foundation, are getting divorced. We have new details this morning about billionaire power couple Bill and Melinda Gates' divorce. Their divorce settlement could be the biggest ever recorded. The Gates Foundation said Bill and Melinda will remain co-chairs and trustees of the foundation, adding that their work will continue. Now, ordinarily, you and I both know a celebrity divorce wouldn't automatically make international news headlines. So why is this one? Yeah, this story does actually go beyond the tabloids. And it's just because of how much money they have. I mean, not only do they have this foundation, Bill Gates run Microsoft for decades, and the couple themselves, they're worth more than $100 billion. So whatever happens to that money, however it gets split up, that's going to make waves. And that'll likely be a long process, I imagine. Yeah, there will be more stories coming out. But even before the divorce was announced, there were some cracks and a little bit of light was starting to shine in onto the foundation. This is Tim Schwab again. At first, you had news coming out about the Gates Foundation's role in the pandemic response, especially around waiving the vaccine patents to treat coronavirus. Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation was opposed to that. And as public experts and national governments around the world were calling for this waiver, it increasingly put the Gates Foundation in an awkward situation. So that news started to trickle out, a rare bad news cycle for the Gates Foundation. And then news of the divorce broke, which really changed everything. Suddenly you have the highest profile news outlets in the country taking a very, very close look at Bill Gates. And there's been all kinds of allegations that have emerged around misconduct with female employees. After word that Bill and Melinda Gates will divorce new reporting tonight that Bill Gates had an extramarital relationship with an associate. An employee raised a concern in 2019, saying Bill Gates sought an intimate relationship with her in 2000. There's a recent reporting about the Gates Foundation's money manager. Gates' money manager, Michael Larson, was accused of sexual harassment. So the news narrative is really shifting under the feet of the Gates Foundation right now in really interesting ways. So we won't know what happens with this right away, with the money or the foundation. Is that right? Right. In this case, the couple announced that there would be no changes to the foundation. That was the first announcement. But Tim says there was some skepticism even then. They said, though Bill and Melinda are getting divorced, the Charity will continue as always. They'll continue to co-lead it together. But what we've seen is it's just increasingly difficult to see how that's possible. The Gates Foundation has a very woman-centric, equity-focused brand. 
And the allegations surrounding Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation now are so at odds with that brand in terms of allegations of um, inappropriate workplace conduct with female employees. So it's really hard to see how there could be a business as usual scenario playing out. The Gates Foundation has announced maybe making some organizational changes, maybe bringing an independent board. I think the Gates Foundation is definitely changing and it's going to look different in the weeks and months and years ahead. And then more recently, the story broke that Bill Gates could push Melinda French Gates out of her role at the foundation if it doesn't work out. So there are a lot of potential changes at the top, but that also has people thinking maybe it's time for other changes. Not everybody's happy with what the foundation's been doing around the world. That makes sense. So what are the criticisms of the Gates Foundation? One of the criticisms is that the leadership is not very diverse. Up until recently, there were three trustees. Now there's two. It was Bill and Melinda French Gates and Warren Buffett, also one of the richest men in the world. Warren Buffett recently left, which some took as not great news for the foundation, though Buffett himself says publicly his goals are, quote, 100 percent in sync with the foundation. Regardless, it's not a very big group of trustees. And then Tim also says that there are indications that for a charity, it might not be as charitable as it should be. The ways that they're using their money in terms of investments in terms of loans, in terms of in the grant making they do, I think in a lot of ways it would strain the common definition of charity. For example, I found that the, the foundation's $50 billion endowment many years generates more investment income than the foundation gives away in charitable grants. So at a certain point, you have to ask, are they an investment bank or are they a charity? What is the primary purpose of this institution? One of the things Tim said was something that I actually heard from all the people I spoke to about the Gates Foundation. And keep in mind, the foundation themselves still hasn't responded. But there were a lot of criticisms about this very top-down approach. It moves into these public policy areas like agriculture or global health. And it has its own agenda, which is guided by the vision of Bill and Melinda Gates it's not transparent and it's not accountable to all the different stakeholders who work in those areas. So it really gives them an incredible amount of influence and power that critics have always said is unfair and undemocratic. So they, they'd basically like to have more voice. They absolutely. When the Gates Foundation shows up with a suitcase full of cash and big ideas in some country or some city or some village, everybody stops what they're doing and turns to look at what that idea is, and they follow that money. So it's a real asymmetry in terms of wealth and power. And a lot of that asymmetry is in sub-Saharan Africa. It's a really big part of where the foundation works. It's a big part of their image, the work they do there. Something like two-thirds of the dollars that they've given away, tens of billions of dollars, has been to global health and development. And a lot of that has been focused on sub-Saharan Africa. And this is Bill Gates talking about what he wants for Africa at an Africa Center event in 2019. It'd be great if the world could give Africa much better seeds, if it can figure out how to minimize climate change, and if it can give tools of health so that not only do we reduce these, the, the deaths, but also for the kids who grow up, that they are very healthy. So there are a lot of projects. Which one rose to the top for you when you were looking at this story? Yeah, there was one project 
that seemed important. And it's about agriculture, but it's also about hunger and really whether people live or die. So I saw this report by also a guy named Tim. Uh, This time, Tim was in Boston, not in Washington, D.C. My name is Timothy A. Wise. I'm a researcher and advisor with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy and a longtime international development expert. Timothy Weiss wrote a book, Eating Tomorrow, it's called, Agribusiness, Family Farmers, in the Battle for the Future of Food. And in 2020, he followed up on his book with this report on the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, AGRA, which is an acronym. And it's a Gates Foundation project with one goal. To give Africa its own green revolution, the first green revolution having been the one in the 1970s in which high-yield seeds and fertilizers and other inputs were used in India and promoted heavily to try to increase food production. They are widely credited, somewhat incorrectly, with saving millions of lives by allowing Indian farmers to grow more food. A lot of people now say the increase in irrigation was what actually led to all the food growth. But regardless, things really improved in India. But these hunger problems in Africa persisted. And people like Gates wanted to do something about it. Africa missed out on the first green revolution, so the narrative goes. And now we have the technologies to give Africa its own specially designed green revolution. And green revolution, the term does not refer to environmentalism. And this is the part where coming into this, I was a little confused, but Tim straightened me out. It refers to an alternative to red revolutions. That's where the name came from in the 1960s and 70s, because U.S. geopolitical interests dictated that we needed to find alternatives to peasant revolutions like in China and Vietnam. And the way to do that was to offer agricultural development. So they said a green revolution, not a red revolution. The green revolution in Africa just builds on that narrative. And Bill Gates started his foundation in 2000, right? That's a few years later. Yeah, exactly. That is a few years later. Tim Weiss says that he has this theory on why the Green Revolution was so appealing to Gates, too. You know, Bill Gates thinks that technology solves all problems. He, was, he gave an interview with The Economist, and they asked him a question, and what do you think we need to do? And he sort of, in his boyish way, laughed and said, well, you know me, my answer to everything is technology. I'm kind of a one-trick pony. Technology in this case means commercial seeds bred to be higher yielding, theoretically, and synthetic fertilizers, which he describes as magic. Fertilizer is magic. We couldn't grow enough food to feed a third of the world if we didn't have this incredible addition that drives crop productivity. And you combine that with private investment and markets, functioning markets, and it's a market-driven recipe for increasing food production in Africa. And it's just a complete failure. What was that last thing he just said? Yeah, it was just a complete failure. That's what he said. So they're using technology, commercial seeds, fertilizer, They were giving out loans and grants to farmers and governments to buy these seeds and fertilizers. And they just didn't produce as much as they thought they would. 
I mean, they set a goal by 2020, which was partly why we did the research. They set a goal of doubling productivity, meaning yields and incomes for 30 million small-scale farming households while cutting food insecurity in half by 2020. So really ambitious goals, maybe designed to get donor funding, but those were their stated goals. And so we looked in the 13 countries that Agra had focused on and assessed to what extent a green revolution was taking place 14 years on. And I was definitely curious why they didn't reach their goals. But I was also kind of curious what would have happened if they had reached their goals. Like, would we see the end of hunger in Africa? It's a pretty appealing possibility. So I asked him about that first. What would that look like if they reached their goal? How much more food would there be? So if if Agra had met its goals, we still would have seen a pretty dysfunctional agriculture. It's corn and rice, basically, in, in most parts of Africa. And when you throw all your resources at one crop, you end up creating monocultures, monocrops that mine the soil for nutrients. If you all you do is feed them with chemical fertilizers, the soil gets more acidic and less fertile over time. That's what India has seen. You could say they had a successful green revolution, lots of new commercial seeds, lots of fertilizer used. In the long run, it's really gone up in smoke. Those yields have declined as pesticide use has gone out of control because of new pests that have come on because of resistance to the old pests. All kinds of things that, again, if anyone was paying attention, we could have foreseen. But, of course, Tim said Agra, the Gates Foundation, and there are many other big donors, Rockefeller, USAID, IKEA. Agra didn't meet those first goals. They came nowhere near meeting their goal. I knew this from researching my book without, before I looked at the, at the actual data. I was researching 2015 on... Um, in Malawi, in Mozambique, in Zambia, Tanzania, Southern Africa. And what you found was that farmers would take their subsidies and buy these things, but they weren't producing very well. And the farmers didn't like them. Like, they didn't like eating the corn. Like, they liked their local corn to eat much better. So they'd grow a little bit, try and sell it in the market, because that's what people were buying, the commercial varieties. But it really wasn't generating the kinds of productivity growth that were promised. And so they stopped. I mean, they just don't keep doing it. It's expensive to do. You know, you go in, you can go into debt. So we found that overall in Agra's 13 countries, instead of yields going up 100%, that would be a doubling. They went up 29% over 12 years. That's pretty mediocre. I should say Agra did issue a public statement saying they were disappointed by Tim Weiss's report and they attacked his professional standards. But Tufts, the university Tim was with, backed him up. But yeah, so I wanted also to talk to someone in Africa, too, about their thoughts on Agra and the Gates Foundation. So I caught up with David, who you heard from in the beginning. David Otieno Sidi, the small-scale farmer who's also a member of Kenya's Peasant League. Exactly. Yeah. So David also works with Via Campesina, so he is not on the Gates Green Revolution side, but he does actually like corn and cornmeal. He says Kenyans eat it a lot. 
Yeah, in fact, in Kenya, in Kenya, my favorite food is ugali. <laughs> ugali is a staple food in in Kenya. Uh, majority of the household take ugali, and of course with the vegetables, and we also have what is called nyamachoma. Nyamachoma is uh, is barbecued meat or roasted meat. But David doesn't like just any ungali. Ungali is corn-based and like a cornmeal dumpling or something like that, if you could imagine. I haven't actually had it. I just heard about it from David. Yes, it has to be cooked well after maize has been harvested. It is grinded it, and then it turns, turns into flour. And then it, uh, it, it, the water is boiled and then you make an ugali. It should be indigenous maize grounded in a, in a portion meal and then made up hard you see, with the traditional vegetable, very, very delicious. And David's goal is to get more traditional herbs and indigenous maize and other traditional seeds going. That's what he does. He grows and he gives out indigenous seeds to other farmers. Here, you can hear the sound of him planting trees on World Environment Day. Okay, we are now planting, uh, transplanting the moringa trees from the seedbeds. He's really passionate about the land in Kenya. He doesn't like the fertilizer Agra's using. He doesn't like the monoculture, just growing certain varieties of maize or corn. He doesn't like having to buy Agra seeds. And he doesn't like what it's doing to small-scale Kenyan farmers like himself. He says some of the farmers are brainwashed, convinced that Agra seeds are better than the indigenous ones. We call it brainwashing because you find that they believe the traditional is primitive. They believe that indigenous is primitive. And then, of course, during the pandemic, the shutdowns made it harder to get these special agri-seeds and the other inputs to grow. When there's a lockdown, when the government says there's no entry and exit of the country, then you find that the time that it takes for the seeds to come it's longer than it used to do. So you find that there are situations where farmers plow, but they are, they, the seeds have not yet arrived. And in those cases, we receive like a total of about 78 requests for seeds from people who are not our members, telling us we need this maize, we need this. And he says that urgency changed some people's minds about the agri-seeds. They're telling us now with the experience had, they want to have their own seeds in their own household so that they can be able to reproduce them rather than depending on these other systems that is forcing them to buy seed from agrovets. If you are not owning seeds, you are a slave. You are not food sovereign. And if something happened to Agra or the Gates Foundation, even if they couldn't continue, David says he wouldn't be that upset. Agra is a new form of colonization. Basically, it was about forcefully ruling others. Right now, through AGRA and other initiatives, you find that most of the global south are being controlled in terms of what they can plant. They are not involved. AGRA is a new form of colonization. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with Priyanka Tilvey, Nagin Oliai, Alexander Locke, Ney Alvarez, Dina Kisfe, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is our story editor. Ayan Milek is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. If you want to get in touch, we want to hear from you. We're on Twitter and Instagram at AJTheTake. We'll be back. <laughs>